0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style. The Economist
1: In London, this is The Economist, with Tasting Menu, a selection of the most delectable morsels from the week's coverage. I'm Anne McElvoy, Head of Economist Radio, and on our menu this week, the speedy, cheap way to reach Wall Street. Why companies should help introverts thrive, and anti-globalists are ruining guacamole. But first, the art of the lie was our cover line this week. Politicians are renowned for not sticking completely to the truth, but does it matter if they leave it behind entirely? Our cover leader explored a world of
0: post-truth politics. Consider how far Donald Trump is estranged from fact. He inhabits a fantastical realm where Barack Obama's birth certificate was faked, the president-founded Islamic State, the Clintons are killers, and the father of a rival was with Lee Harvey Oswald before he shot John F. Kennedy. An interesting glimpse there into the mind of the potential next president of America. Mr. Trump is the leading exponent of post-truth politics, A reliance on assertions that feel true but have no basis in fact. And he's not alone. Members of Poland's government assert that a previous president, who died in a plane crash, was assassinated by Russia. Turkish politicians claim the perpetrators of the recent bungled coup were acting on orders issued by the CIA. So our leader laid out the foundations for the phenomenon. Post-truth politics has many parents. Some are noble. The questioning of institutions and received wisdom is a democratic virtue. A sceptical lack of deference towards leaders is the first step to reform. But such noble aims have become tainted by corrosive forces. One is anger. Many voters feel let down and left behind, while the elites who are in charge have thrived. Popular trust in expert opinion and established institutions has tumbled across Western democracies. Thankfully, however, the truth has a powerful ally in technology. Any politician who makes contradictory promises to different audiences will soon be exposed on Facebook or YouTube. If an official lies about attending a particular meeting or seeking a campaign donation, a trail of emails may catch him out. We leave email trails behind and join the path now of a fashionable global commodity. Avocados have become
1: commonplace, far from their Central American origin. But as we find out in our Americas section, anti-globalists have been ruining guacamole of late.
2: About 500 years ago, when Spanish explorers penetrated the Mesoamerican forest, they found people eating a tasty, nutritious fruit with lime-green flesh which looked quite unlike any edible plant they had ever seen. They came, they saw and they exported. In due course, its cultivation proved a stellar success in places from Florida to Israel to New Zealand.
1: It became a feature of Australian
2: beach parties and London dinners.
1: And a fine feature too, especially if you add some tequila. But its global success hasn't gone down so well with locals.
2: Why then are people in Costa Rica moaning that they can't get enough of this lovely food, or at least not at the right price or quality? Steak is now cheaper than avocado, fumes a tweet from Atico, as the country's people are called.
1: So who's to blame for avocado inflation? A rather
2: clunky piece of protectionism, we explained. Last year, the government slapped a ban on the import of Hass avocados, the most popular kind worldwide, from nine countries, including Mexico, which was the main supplier, and raised the matter at the World Trade
1: Organization. The ban was aimed at protecting local produce from disease, but it's ended up just causing a lot of waste. Ticos now have a
2: taste for the Hass variety, both raw and mashed. Restaurants in Costa Rica say about a fifth of the avocado they serve is wasted because customers
1: prefer Hass to anything local. Over in our Africa section, an article explained how bad robots have been giving a helping hand to South African thieves. In
0: 1927, an industrialist named Isidore Schlesinger installed Johannesburg's first traffic light. It drew crowds of onlookers, but was short-lived. An errant motorist soon knocked it down. Now there's an exquisite example of irony. Today, the city's robots, as they are called in South African English, are still unreliable especially when it rains. Accidents and malfunction do play their part, but... The biggest problem is robot robbers. Like power lines and manhole covers, traffic lights attract thieves who sell the metal for scrap. Some will cut down the entire pole to get a bit of copper wire. In one theft, caught on video, a man hacks away at a robot's cables with a pickaxe while two others stand guard scrambling into the bushes whenever a car goes by. Time to strike back. The Johannesburg Rose Agency has started beefing up the robots' defences. The 70 most frequently vandalised traffic lights have been fitted with CCTV cameras and vibration detection, so we can tell when someone's trying to cut down a pole, explains Darryl Thomas, head of the JRA's Department for Mobility and Freight. But what goes around comes around. Thieves have been nabbing the anti-thievery bits too. A remote monitoring system using SIM cards proved a disaster. Within months, thieves had stripped them all and run up huge phone bills using them.
1: Presumably calling each other to laugh about the latest spree. As Johannesburg's traffic lights are secretly dismantled, we head now to a case of technology vanishing in slightly more dramatic fashion. SpaceX is one of a handful of companies trying to dominate the market for spaceflight. No mean feat in itself. Yet an explosion on the launch pad last week may have left a dent in the company's reputation. Our science correspondent, Tim Cross, picked his way through the fallout.
3: Rockets are hard. They're basically big bombs and you try and sort of detonate them in a controlled way. History suggests that most rockets get more reliable as time goes on. But SpaceX for its part, I mean, they point out they have a big, a nice fat order book. Lots of people want to use their rockets because they're so much cheaper than the competition. So they've got this contract with NASA to fly cargo to the ISS. They've also got lots of contracts with various private companies to fly satellites. So they're in a reasonably strong position, but people who might have been looking at their services, will now be thinking, hmm, is there a reliability problem here?
1: As SpaceX fights through the carnage and strives to win the race to space, we head to the finance section, where we took a look at those struggling to make themselves more employable on Wall Street. An article explored the rising popularity of a cheaper, faster way into the world of finance.
3: Mathematical wizards known as quants are prized by trading firms in Chicago, hedge funds in Greenwich, Connecticut and big banks in New York, London and Hong Kong.
1: These aren't typical bankers, however.
3: They wear T-shirts, not suits, and can bring in fatter pay packets than bankers for less gruelling hours. But becoming a quant is hard. A PhD in maths or physics usually helps.
1: Can't really blag my way into one of those, but a new route into finance has opened up.
3: More and more universities are trying to provide students with a shortcut to Wall Street via master's degrees in quantitative finance. Familiarity with advanced calculus, probability and programming are minimum requirements. These courses, usually 12 or 18 months long, are faster and cheaper than either doctoral programmes or typical MBAs.
1: Overall demand for mathematical skills is on the rise.
3: In trading, People are needed to design strategy and write codes rather than execute individual deals.
1: As industries change, new challenges inevitably pop up and workers must adapt their skill sets to succeed. Over in our business section, however, our Schumpeter columnist was focused on rather deeper characteristics in employees. In our Money Talks podcast this week, the shy and retiring Adrian Waldridge teased out the strengths of introverts and explained why businesses would do well to help them thrive.
3: Introverts, I think, have certain qualities which are important and valuable they tend to be more reflective. They tend to be quite good at cerebration, at thinking in the long term. They're less impulsive. And finally, because introverts can actually train themselves to do the sort of things that extroverts do, which is to get out there to motivate people to deal with people in a social setting. They're not incapable of doing it, so they just find it a bit more difficult and they have to sort of recharge
1: themselves. For more discussion on all things business and finance, do download Money Talks. You can find it published each Tuesday. From the quiet strength of introverts, we move through to our letters section, where each week you have the opportunity to be heard loud and clear. Amongst the entries this week, John Lurbenstein from Australia shared his views on our recent cover leader on cheating death. While we argued that increasing longevity is a dawning inevitability, he explained that we should perhaps refocus our efforts in a more youthful direction.
4: With mankind becoming ever more narcissistic, verified by selfies and inane posts on Facebook, the pursuit of longevity is the ultimate expression of our conceit.
1: But while prolonging the physical is one thing, what about all the excess baggage we're keeping alive too?
4: How agile will we be? How set in our ways and resistant to change? We may be alive... But will we be an infuriating break on progress and innovation?
1: John suggested a change in focus for development away from those who are currently set to receive it.
4: Perhaps the clever scientific minds and the dollars that back them should focus on providing solutions to younger people, whose ability to realise their true potential is curtailed for one medical reason or another.
1: I'm taking at least some of that advice to heart and bowing out of the studio gracefully. I'm Anne McElvoy, and that was our tasting menu. Do let us know your thoughts via email to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. And don't forget to rate our podcasts on iTunes. In London, this is The Economist. (music) Economist.